On the internet, no one knows you're a dog. Coined in 1993 by cartoonist Pete Steiner for The New Yorker, this phrase is at once iconic, cliched, and today, completely and totally wrong. In today's internet, everyone knows you're a dog, and likely whether you're into Alpo, Neutro, or Kibbles and Bits. Identity, your identity, your ID, is a powerful tool and an invaluable commodity. I'm Ken Cadet, and this is the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute podcast, and today we're going to talk about the future of identity. What is it? Who owns it? How do you protect it? And how much of your identity do you have to share to get what you need? My Entrust Cybersecurity Institute colleagues today are Gord Wilson, who is an expert in enabling trusted digital access to government services, Greg Wetmore, our head of software development, and Mark Rucci, CISO at Entrust. So everybody, let's get started. Greg, let's talk about these two sides of identity, anonymity and identity. Um, what's going on here? What happened here? Well, I really like the last part of your intro phrase there, everyone knows you're a dog. It's a bit provocative. And I think you can think of it in two ways, like you just identified. Nowadays, we, we've kind of lost our anonymity on the internet. I mean, where everything we do is tracked. Sometimes it feels like you just have to talk about a product and suddenly you're inundated with advertisements every time you pick up your phone or open your laptop. Um, but the flip, the flip side of that really is, and the exciting part for Entrust is that now we're capable of securely asserting our identity in a high assurance way and, and we're able to perform important online transactions more and more than ever. Um, so I, I think it's those two sides that are, that are interesting to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. It's like we need, we need to be trusted on the internet. We need to identify ourselves on the internet, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, the, the transition, even over the last few years, as we all moved home, uh, from COVID, we're doing our business transactions online. We're working online. We're our major financial transactions in our lives now are done online. Um, this this last couple of years has just absolutely accelerated the uh, the value of being able to assert your identity securely and the kinds of transactions you can perform online. Yeah, Gord, what's your take? I mean, I mean, I know there's 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 a lot been there's a lot been gained and a lot been lost over the last years last few years, right? Well, of course, you know when we were at COVID, as Greg was saying. We had to renew our passports online. We got government services online, sometimes very important for people in terms of applying for assistance. So it took on a whole new dimension. And as a result of that, I think the expectation is now different, right? We don't want to go back to having to go to a physical channel. We want a choice. So in order to support that choice, we have to have a higher level of identity uh, checking and verification of the person. and. By the same token, I'd want to make sure that if I was going for a service that that was available to make sure that my transaction is really me doing it. So it's a two-way street there. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like there's a there's um there's a lot we there's a lot we have to tell people, and yet at the same time, there's you know there, there always seems to be this this nervousness among people about um uh, you know about how much of how much people know about them online, right? Uh, you know. Mark, there's like privacy considerations as well and security considerations and all this too. Absolutely. I'm kind of chuckling because uh, you know, you're talking about the two sides. You know, there's still a lot of people who think they're anonymous out there that they really aren't. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Greg and Gord kind of hit on this, you know, just between COVID and the digitization, 
it is it is moving massively. Nobody really wants to go back. But from a fraud, from protecting your identity, you really need to um, have appropriate controls around them. And one of them I was chuckling about, just thinking about even even when I on the rare occasions I get a physical check. It seems like forever ago that I would have to drive to the bank, you know, scribble it out and hand it. I, you know, I was trying to remember how long has it been since I've even done that. Yeah, exactly. And yet, you know, we're 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 giving a lot of trust to the institutions that you know are able to identify us and know us and that sort of thing, which kind of brings us around to um, uh, authentication and you know, and, and identity verification and things like that. And which always, and that discussion always seems to get us back to passwords. Um, and our, uh, you know, our group, um, you know, as, as Entrust Cybersecurity Institute, we, we did a survey um, just recently on the future of identity. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, and it gave us a little bit of insight about identity online. But one thing we asked about was, was passwords and how we access things. I mean, passwords essentially are a way we identify ourselves, a username and password, when we want to do things in the digital world. Um, and yet, you know, we have obviously a conflicted relationship with them. You know, our survey found that 51% of people reset their passwords once a month because they can't remember, and 15% of them do it once a week. I'm probably somewhere in that category. Um, what do you... What, what do you think of all this? What's the, you know, and it seems like, it seems like, you know, we talk about ending the password every day and yet passwords are still here. What's, you know, what's going on there? What, what, what are we seeing? What, what are we seeing in the password world? Mark, your thoughts? I think passwords still have uh, a use. You know, obviously we're all trying to work to a, a, a frictionless world out there at some point in the future. Um, but of course you also have to keep um, ahead uh, of the bad actors, you know, so passphrases, password vaults, supplementing it with multi-factor off, you know, the, it, it, it's all, it, it's, it's still a very large part of our identity process. Um, you know, at some point in the future, and, and authorization, you know, again, it, it, it's a huge um, issue that we're, there's going to be lots of legs behind it and continued development, but it's still here for the time being. Um, I personally rely on, you know, for mine, I pass raises uh, wherever I can because it's a lot easier to write, you know, it's a lot easier to remember a 16 or 18 character password if you have a pass phrase than it is to, you know, write it on a yellow stick here, to your point, having to get it reset every week because you've forgotten. That makes sense. You talked about that every year we hear about the death of passwords. You, you almost are a bit of a fool to say that you could forecast the death of password, right? We've, we've probably been talking about that for 15 years and um, yet it's they're still part of our daily lives. I think though what's, what is important and what we are seeing the real technology trend is with mobile devices now, we suddenly have these um, this capability to um, assert our identity or authorize authenticate ourselves using our biometrics, using our cryptographic keys that are inside our digital wallets. And when you look at the most important transactions that are happening online nowadays, whether it's opening a bank account or executing a large financial transaction or consuming some kind of government service, almost none of them now rely only on a password. And, and many now are transitioning away entirely from passwords and going to, you know, phishing resistant technologies, FIDO pass keys, or 
decentralized identity wallets or high assurance certificate based identities. Um, and you certainly see that trend very strongly moving in those important high value transactions that are happening online today. Absolutely. And, and I know our, our survey also found that consumers are beginning to trust more and more biometric forms of uh, uh, authentication. Like, you know, we, we found 53% found fingerprint scans are the most secure authentication method. Others, uh, nearly half said facial recognition. Um, one question I wanted to put out there is, are they right? Are those more, are those more secure? Gord, what do you think? Uh, I think it's a, it's a matter of degree, right? If, if I'm going to do a very simple password, which unfortunately most people have one, two, three, four, or my kid's birth date, uh, yeah, biometrics going to be clearly stronger than that. Right. And it's a case of the whole process. So, you know, when I register the biometric, I'm going to use a reference image associated with that. So, you know, have I checked the reference image and its source? Is that a viable, uh, you know, properly done high level of uh, authentication process in order to establish that as a comparison point? So there's a, there's a process in both sides. Uh, ideally we're moving towards a world where biometrics, because you know, it's, it's always handy. <laughs> can can be used right and and it, it's done in a proper way with the more secure process to register the individual those two combined make it very secure i think what Gord said there that i'd pull out is it, it's hard to just say yes or no what's more secure you really have to look at the whole system um and biometrics are clearly a, a you know a pretty secure technology when they're implemented well when you're uh you know unlocking your phone with your face those are very secure interactions that have been very carefully designed to preserve your privacy and be be secure. And when you're thinking about a larger system where you're using biometrics to unlock a digital identity in your wallet and you're using that to identify yourself for a government service, it really is the whole system that we need to think about. Is this more secure than, than a password? And you just have to look at how those services, online services, are rolling out today. They're, they're generally not rolling out with passwords. Or certainly not only passwords. Um, it's these more secure identity technologies that are allowing us to um, allowing service providers to offer these high value transactions online. I'd agree a hundred percent with what Greg said. You know, the analogy I would make is to the in cryptography. If you know, although the weak link was the key management system, you know, rarely did somebody you know crack the cryptography when it was ripe during its age. So it's really the system, the entire system. And boy, I'll, I'll say this, you know, I just came back from a international flight and walking through customs and, and it snaps a picture of me as all well. that was it. And I didn't have to do it anything else. And it was, a, you know, it's, it's really convenient and it's hard for people to steal your face, your fingerprints, you know, your blood work, if you wanted to go down that route. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and um, it sort of leads us to some of the other things we were going to talk about, which is, um, you know, digital forms of ID, like actually replacing or supplementing or switching back and forth between a digital form of ID and a, uh, and a physical uh, form of ID, like, like a passport. Um, our survey found that um, Seven in ten consumers said, "Yeah, that they, they would look at a, using a digital form of government ID if it was available." Um, and yet, at the same time, you know, we're seeing um, in the news right now uh, 
in the UK, there was a, a bipartisan position, a commission, a bipartisan commission um, that's calling for government modernization. And the one thing that got called out um, in a lot of the news coverage of that is their mention of of looking at digital IDs. So what um, what's going on there? It seems like there's a higher degree of acceptance and yet, um, you know, a higher degree of nervousness about that as well. What do you think, Gord? Well, I think if you look at that in context, right, what you're seeing is two specific things. You're seeing a, I think the debate is always there about the role of government in digital identity. And, you know, there's a, there's a wide variety of opinions around the world. Uh, some governments are heavily involved in issuing that and others more setting standards that set the uh, federated uh, approaches have to meet. And, and this is a highlighting of it. And also, I think timing-wise, where you look back 10 years in the UK and they approached that at one point in time and then backed away. So it, it highlights a shifting societal set of needs and attitudes. Now, 10 years later, we're looking at this in a different way. They're looking at their uh, compatriots across the channel in the EU or going ahead with the digital wallet scheme. And many of them already have e-ideas, a mandatory and a document in their national IDs. And so there's a there's a need with COVID having changed attitudes about the importance of being able to transact securely and digitally. There's a recognition of this need to let's take a look at the debate that was 10 years ago and, and let's, let's look at where we are today. And I think that's what this article really highlights is, you know, not, not you know, this position, obviously, uh, the parties have changed their opinions, uh, but they're they're provoking this debate in the country and saying, where do we want to be in that spectrum between government doing it all or setting standards? And they've, they've tried. They've had experience with the UK Verify scheme that they've learned from. Um, more recently, during COVID, they had the National Health Service set up a digital uh, login process and verification so that people could have access to their health records. So th they've had a, a learning experience and, and tried different schemes out of necessity, sometimes with COVID. And that's shifted societal attitudes as well. So I think it's a worthwhile time frame to say, where do we as government want to represent our citizens? And what is the citizen population saying that they want as an acceptable point of role of government in that? Yeah, and what's a reasonable what's a what's a reasonable balance across that? You know, with with you know people with that 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 balance of you know wanting a digital process, a digital workflow in a sense, you know, a digital process to, to engage with the government and, you know, wanting the government to only have whatever it needs. Like, how does it, how does that work? What's the, what's the balance um, that governments and even businesses need to strike there? I think when we're talking about digital identity, a lot of the controversy comes from this sort of concept of the big brother, right? Watching, tracking, uh, and having access to all of your personal information. And you know, a lot of the identity schemes of the past were very centralized and had a lot of, you know, legitimate concerns about data privacy and about tracking and about, you know, who's controlling your identity information. Um, and, and there was, there's been a lack of transparency then, and that has, I think, generated some of this mistrust. What's happening with my data? Who's in control of my data? Um, I think, Technology is is offering some interesting answers now. Um, we have some some really interesting sort of cutting edge technology, decentralized identity that puts is very user centric, puts the user in control of their data, um, and I think 
part of the role of governments and security evangelists and technology companies are going to be to sort of evangelize some of these valuable and, and new capabilities that these newer digital identity systems have that address some of those concerns that people legitimately have with, you know, centralized trust authorities. If I'm a business right now, I mean, what, you know, th you know, thinking about thinking about this, you know, one of the things we found in our study is that, um, you know, people understand, you know, people understand that they have to give up information to get access to services. Sometimes they're giving up a little bit of privacy. In our, in our study, we saw 55% of respondents basically felt like they don't own their information at all. Um, they, um, and 74%, you know, understood and agreed that it's kind of unavoidable, unavoidable to, um, to share some personal information for access to good goods and services, you know, which, you know, basically means that, you know, basically is a kind of acceptance. Um, you know, what, um, uh, what does that what does that mean for what does that mean for a business if they're thinking you know if they're thinking about this you know it 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 certainly puts some responsibility um, in the hands of a business right well yeah I, I agree because you know thinking about you know, Greg you were kind of talking about that friction between Big Brother and 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 the frictionless services that can go out there it can kind of what you were talking about maybe, of course thing that makes me think you know Facebook and other things like that. Or, you know, people give away all kinds of data for something free, but the onus on the companies, it comes into that privacy side of it. You know, there's all kinds of global privacy regimes now, in, you know, the EU, Canada, California, China, and ultimately we're being held accountable as companies. Every company is. So it's really beholding upon us to support stronger, more resilient, regiments. And as uh, Greg had talked about, you know, very much this idea um, of a decentralized identity, um, the more I can control, the more um, it, can, it will work to the advantages of businesses and, and nonprofits and whatever around the world. And I think it leads to more acceptance. Yeah. I think one thing we noticed in our survey was that, um, Consumers will tend to choose convenience, but but if they feel even even the ability to opt out, right, you know, gives them a better feeling of control over their identity, and people do to some extent want that. Um, other other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I control on transparency. I want I want to know exactly what data I am making available to a business or a service provider or a government. Um, I want some control of that. And I want to give the very minimum amount of information required to, to consume a service. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm going into a, a bar, I don't necessarily want to give them my birthday and my address. I just want to tell them that I'm 19 years or older or 21 years or older, wherever, whatever the laws are in that. Well, location. I think they know. And so, thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Ken. You'll have to adjust your opening next time. The, the gray hair gives you it away in my beard. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that the technology evolution around digital identity is is moving in that direction, basically providing uh, users control and giving them transparency and allowing them to release only the, the smallest amount, only the minimum amount of information required to consume a given service. Um, and yeah, that's the evolution we're seeing in the techno on the technology side. I, I am interested to see how that goes, and I'm assuming that's a little bit 
a little bit, uh, a few years away at this point, right? Or no? Well, it's starting to come if you look at the travel sector, right? And, and Mark had talked about coming back into the country as we are getting ready to go live and how that's changing. So people recognize that there's a value to them if they have to provide the information a little bit earlier to get a significant facilitation advantage when they arrive, whether it be a fast lane or uh, not having to go through the, the full detailed security lane processes or on border arrival, you can walk through with your, your facial image, you know, being your biometric and showing the, uh, showing that you've submitted all the details they need and you walk through, right? So we're starting to see those in pilots. Still, it's going to take a while for the general public to see it, but, uh, you know, the U.S. has been very advanced in applying biometrics for several of their programs, Simplified Arrival, Global Entry, as well as the Biometric Exit Program. So that's very broad now. You're talking about 90% of people leaving the U.S. going through a biometric exit. Yeah, if we're talking specifically about decentralized identity technology, it's definitely in the early stages. We're, we're in sort of the standards development phase and the um, early implementation phases on projects, but we're seeing rapid progress. Um, Gord talked about the European digital identity wallet that's moving through the standardization process in, in the EU. That's a, a piece of decentralized identity technology. Um, so, you know, I, it's, it's, we're early, but it's not far away either. Um, we're seeing fairly rapid development on the technology side. So if I'm leading a large enterprise right now, what should I be thinking about knowing these kinds of technologies are coming down the road that are going to put the user a little bit more in control um, and some other considerations like that? Greg? Yeah, I, I think what's critical here is digital identity today is at the core of uh, an organization's digital, digital transformation strategy. Um, we think about digital customer onboarding. You think about friction and, and authentication technologies, authorization technologies. Um, it's, it's those pieces that are really enabling organizations today to deliver more services to their customers, to their partners, to their citizens online. It's a core part of the strategy. And there are some really interesting, capable technology, highly secure technology available today that covers all the whole spectrum of things I talked about. Um, Gord, like Gord's doing a ton of work on, on customer onboarding. Um, what does that look like to you, Gord? Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at uh, large companies or governments looking at the customer experience for key transactions that they're trying to do with, with their citizens or customers, one of the first stages of that is, is the onboarding experience, right? So if we look at customer experience and, and look at where is, where is it difficult today? Where is there a lot of... Uh, high emotional interaction with the customer that's going to make a decision. Do I continue with this or not? Right? Am I going to choose this bank? Am I going to choose this country to go on a vacation with, for example? And, and how do we make that a much simpler, easier, more accessible experience using digital, right? So we, we look at the process and how do we use digital onboarding at the front end of that to, to open up the possibilities. And that's where we're doing. A fair amount of work with governments today, for example, in the travel sector, as I mentioned earlier, uh, experimenting with that. So often it's a small group of people or a certain area, but I think it's important to identify what does the consumer or customer think of is as high value? 
and focus on those customer experience interactions of, of high value because it will give the citizen or consumer uh, a better sense that I'm getting something for this process of going through the digital um, in return. And that's the incentive we saw with the UK, with the EU settlement program, where we had a very high number of people go through that process digitally. And at the beginning, we weren't really sure how many were going to go through that. And it turned out well over 90% chose a digital route, which is a very high percentage, uh, you know, in terms of government programs, but not just government, even in the private sector, 90% adoption rate is, is a huge stretch of and success. So having the incentive for the customer or the citizen applying or going through the transaction process to me is a very key. So it's important that companies don't, yes, it's good to get your feet wet with small scale pilots, but at the same time, choose something that's meaningful to the citizen so that they have the value coming back to them. I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's finish with a couple final thoughts from each of you in, in 30 seconds or less. Um, you know, a prediction on the future of identity. Mark? Well, for me, it's always going to be that I have to own my identity. Um, if I don't own my own identity, everything we've talked about here is going to be some level of a reduced impact. Um, the, the, the increased digitization, you know, and I guess that's that's easy, uh, low-hanging fruit to say is going to increase, but that's what I think. I'm going to have to own my own identity. Borg? I think we're going to be using our phones even more than we do today as our, our token, if you will, or our, our wallet. Um, and that will be part of an integrated process that'll open up a lot more high value transactions for us to be able to do. And Greg will give you the last word. Thanks, Ken. Yeah. So when I look at the evolution of digital identity, we, we're moving towards simpler, safer, more secure capabilities. Um, I, that's, that's going to continue in my opinion. Identities need to be reusable. Um, you know, the, with federated identities from the Facebooks and the Googles, we started to see that theme come through decentralized identities really built around reusable, um, identity that isn't reliant on a single trust authority. And then maybe the last point, AI seems to be everywhere. I think uh, artificial intelligence is going to play an interesting role in the identity and access management world, whether it's reducing friction or detecting anomalies. I think there's going to be some really interesting uh, innovation and development around artificial intelligence and digital identity in the coming years. Fantastic. We'll leave it at that, and we could probably talk about this for another hour, but um, we will we will leave it at that. So thank you, everybody. This has been a great conversation, and thank you for everyone who's listening. Uh, the Entrust Cybersecurity Institute shares news analysis, insights, and commentary for IT and business leaders charged with protecting and enhancing IT infrastructure. We are leveraging insights from Entrust, a global leader in protecting identities, payments, and data. You can look at the show page for notes and links to our content and our, some of our sources. Uh, please do check out the Future of Identity Report. We'll put a link there as well. Our podcast was produced by Stephen Damone. And if you have any comments, questions, and ideas for our podcast, write us at cybersecurityinstitute at entrust.com. And thanks for listening. <laughs>